Hello, I'm Chris Kreitschow, and this is Nuna Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is episode 23, Traits Deep Dive, part one. Much earlier in the show, all the way back in episodes eight and nine, I talked about traits at a high level along with generics, what they're for, and how you can implement existing traits. Today, we're going to dig into some of the mechanics of actually using traits, the nitty-gritty of building your own, and the concrete limitations on where and how you can implement them, as well as what you have to do to use traits which are defined outside your crate. In the next episode, we'll take a look at the use of traits in place of either concrete types or generics, including a look at the upcoming Impel trait feature that will be landing on Rust 1.26. For a quick refresher, let's review what traits are for. Traits are Rust's primary mechanism for shared behavior between objects. Some languages solve this problem with inheritance, or with interfaces that must be applied to an object at the time of object definition. Rust has no conventional notion of inheritance, though, and as it turns out, its traits are quite unlike interfaces in Java or C-sharp or TypeScript. A Rust trait defines shared behavior, and shared behavior only. It cannot define required shapes of objects which implement the trait. So no required class fields in a traditional OO languages interfaces in Rust. A trait can be applied to a type totally independent of the normal definition of that type, too. You can apply anyone else's traits to your types and your types to anyone else's traits. The only place Rust does get something kind of like inheritance in the more traditional sense you might be used to is in traits themselves. A trait can declare that implementing it requires that you also implement some other trait as well. Not exactly inheritance, but something kind of like it. So if you're coming from the perspective of, again, a Java or C-sharp or even a TypeScript, traits you might think of as something like a method-only interface, which can be implemented whenever, not just at class definition time. Importantly, and we'll talk about this a bit more in a minute, they can also be applied to any type. That means that an enum is equally valid for implementing traits as structs are. And traits are everywhere in Rust programming, as you can imagine. So how do we end up actually using them? Let's start by looking at how you actually define and use your own traits. A trait is always defined using the trait keyword and a block that defines the items associated with that trait. This idea of associated items is actually pretty large and it's also very important, so we'll come back to it in a later episode. For now, we'll leave aside some of those details and just focus on creating and implementing traits. We will define a rather silly trait as the basic example to build on for the rest of this episode. Eatable, representing things we can eat. Apparently, I wrote this episode too close to dinner time. Anything which implements eatable needs to have an eat method, and that eat method will return a description of the act of eating that particular thing as a string. We'd write that like this. Trait, eatable, open curly braces, function, eat, and self, to take self by reference, returning a string, semicolon, close curly brace. You'll note that there is no function body there. We'll talk about that in a moment. First, we should pause to pick out the fact that the function type here isn't explicitly declared as pub or any other privacy modifier, and it's not allowed to. The trait itself can be declared with whatever privacy you like, but items on the trait are always public to whatever implements them. 
This makes sense when you consider that the whole point of a trait is to define what behavior is available for things outside a given struct or enum to do. Private details of a type don't belong on a trait, they belong in the impl block for the type itself, and they get whatever privacy you need then. Second, we've not defined any implementation for this function. We've simply written out the type of the function which any implementer has to provide. However, we could have written a basic implementation here, albeit one that doesn't know anything at all about the type where it's implemented, and so which cannot say anything that depends on the internals of those types. If we wanted to do that, we would write trait eatable, open curly brace, function eat, taking self by reference, returning a string, string from the string literal open mouth, insert food. Now, if you've written that, implementers can just write impl eatable for my food, immediately followed by both opening and closing curly braces. And then anytime after that, they can call myfood.eat and we'll get back the string open mouth, insert food. However, it's often preferable not to use a default implementation for a trait, even when it's available. In that case, we can supply our own implementation. If we want to implement a trait, including overriding a default behavior, if we get that stable behavior, we simply need to write impl the trait for the type, and then supply all required and any desired optional elements of that trait. Let's say we wanted to make a breakfast type. That sounds eatable. When I first started learning Rust, I didn't realize this, but it's worth calling out again. It's what I said at the beginning of the episode. Enums, as well as structs, are viable targets for impl blocks for, well, in general, but also specifically for traits. So we'll make a breakfast enum with only the sugariest foods. Enum breakfast with waffles, cereal, and pancakes as the variants. Now we can implement eatable with some special behavior for this type, because we know about our own internals. Impl eatable for breakfast. Declare function eat, take self by reference, return string, and then inside we'll have a match block. We match on dereference of self, and then if it's breakfast waffles or breakfast pancakes, we return the string from the string literal pour syrup and consume, because you need syrup on your waffles or your pancakes. If it's breakfast cereal... We return the string from the string literal add milk, then enjoy the crunch because I like crunchy cereals. However, you can see, even with this silly example, we know about the details of the types, and the default implementation didn't and can't know about that. We can supply some more information about the implementing type with further details in a traits definition. We'll see more on that in a minute, but it's often the case that a specific concrete implementation will know more about the best way to handle a given trait than the trait itself ever could. A common example of this that you'll see pretty often is that although there are default implementations for most of the methods on the iterator trait, you're going to see more specific implementations associated with particular data types. In that case, it's going to be for performance reasons. You implemented the data structure, so you likely have more insight than the iterator trait itself does about the best way to implement some of the methods. For example, the skip method might naively be implemented as just calling the next method the number of times that you pass to skip. However, if you have a data structure where every item is of a known size and laid out in contiguous blocks of memory, in other words, it's laid out like a C-style array, you could write a skip implementation that simply jumps to the appropriate memory offset from the current position in the structure. That would perform much better. Now, in that, 
I just implied something very important. Any trait method can call any other method defined on the same trait or a super trait. More again on super traits in a minute. Let's say our eatable trait should also describe how the food needs to be prepared. Here, we cannot supply a default implementation. Some foods are meant to be eaten raw. Other foods, you might get poisoned to death if you don't cook them, so we can't have a default implementation. Instead, we'll just add the corresponding function to the trait, prepare, but we won't provide a default definition for it. And then we'll go ahead and update our default implementation of eat to include preparing. So now our trait eatable has function prepare take self by reference and return a string, as well as our earlier definition of taking eat, as well as our earlier definition for eat, but with self.prepare called from within it. If you're having a hard time following the code samples, they're in the show notes. Just take a look there. Now, by doing this, we've required that every implementer supply an implementation of prepare, and it's totally fine for the trait to do this and call prepare from within its own methods, because the trait knows that no implementer can exist which doesn't have the prepare method defined. And this is how all the default implementations on the iterator example work. They know there's a next method defined, and they can define their own behavior in terms of that next method, as well as one other piece of information we'll get to. Well, now, I'm not going to take a lot of time on this. Like I said, it deserves its own whole episode and it'll get one. But traits can also define associated items besides just associated functions or methods. In the case of the iterator trait, it has all its own methods, but it also defines the existence of an item type, and implementers have to define that. An item is the kind of thing an iterator iterates over, and which its various methods, therefore, handle and return. It's not a struct field or anything like that, really. It's just a type-level detail. You can think of it as kind of being like a generic, except that associated items can themselves be generic. And having them as these quote-unquote associated items means that we don't have to specify the type of the generic for every place we call the trait method. We can just say at the place where we implement iterator that the item, in this case, is a string or a u32 or a mystruct, and then whenever we call .iter and .map and everything else, it will always be that item type, rather than needing to call .iter and then disambiguate it by naming the type in line immediately. If all of that kind of flew past you, don't worry about it. I'm coming back to this. There's a lot there. For now, it's enough to know that you can require implementers of a trait to define the kinds of things methods of your trait will operate on, and that's what associated types give you. I mentioned super traits a few minutes ago. Traits can specify that they depend on other traits, and that's what we mean by a super trait. So if you're writing a trait that requires its type, also implement iterator, perhaps so that you can map over it, You'll write that with your trait name, followed by a colon, followed by the super trait name. So, for example, trait awesome mappable colon iterator, open curly braces, will define the function awesome map, take self by reference, and then in the body of that function, do something awesome. Anything which implements awesome mappable now also has to implement iterator. And this is handy both for extending the behavior of existing traits and also for the times when you're relying on the behavior of existing traits when you're defining your own traits. In addition to defining your own traits, you can also implement other crates traits on your own types. As an aside, try saying crates traits five times fast and keeping the words in order. It's tricky. 
Thinking back to a recent Crates You Should Know episode, you'll often do exactly this with the serialized and deserialized traits from Serde. You may recall that in that specific case, you'll usually do this with those traits using the custom derive macro, derive serialize as an attribute in front of your struct or menum. But you don't have to. You can fully write out the implementation yourself. Impulse serialize for my struct or my enum. And this goes for any trait defined outside your crate and types you want to define inside your crate. Iterator is another common example from the standard library. Most of the traits in the standard library are good examples, actually. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Rust's traits let you implement them on a type that already exists. The only other examples I'm familiar with for doing this are extension methods in C-sharp, extensions in Objective-C and Swift, and type classes in Haskell. And the biggest difference with C-sharp extension methods in particular in that list is that it's really common to do this in Rust. You can set up extension methods in C-sharp, and people do, but you will do it constantly, and it's pretty much one of the only things you will do in Rust. Going back to our eatable trait, let's do something absurd, and we'll see what it looks like to apply it to the regex crate's regex struct. But Chris, you say, you can't eat regular expressions, to which I say, ha ha ha, Rust gives us superpowers. It even lets us eat regular expressions. We just have to write the eatable implementation. I'm, of course, being absurd. The point is, we can write impl eatable for regex colon colon regex, open curly braces, and then define function prepare, take self by reference, return a string, String from this is truly absurd as a string literal. And then we can define function eat, take self by reference and return a string. Use the format macro and give it curly braces and but we can do it anyway and then call self.prepare to dump that into the string. Then we can take any instance of regex in our crate and call that regex.eat and we'll get back this is truly absurd, but we can do it anyway. And It is indeed absurd in this case. Clearly, I was in quite the mood as I was thinking through this episode. But you can imagine many cases where this kind of thing would be handy. Anywhere you want to be able to use behavior you've defined on a struct defined outside your own crate. This is handy even just when you're using crates as a strong API boundary within your own code base. But of course, it's also really helpful when you're dealing with types from outside your code base. There is one thing you cannot do, though. You cannot define an implementation of a trait from outside your crate for a type from outside your crate. The reason is simple. If you define an implementation for a trait from crate A for a type from crate B in your crate, and then I define a different implementation for the same trait from crate A on the same type from crate B that you did, and then someone uses both your crate and my crate, whose implementation of the trait wins? Rust doesn't have any good way to resolve that. So the rule is you can implement a trait for a type as long as either the trait or the type is local to your crate. You cannot implement external traits on external types. This is sometimes called the orphan rule, from the idea that one of the parent types, either the concrete type, structure enum, or the trait type, is missing. Hopefully that'll keep you from being confused if you hear about the orphan rule in the future. One last thing that's worth note here is a detail that often trips up newcomers to Rust. When you want to use a trait method on a given item which implements that trait, you have to import the trait itself to use it. 
So for example, when you want to call a Saturday deserialization or serialization method on a type, which does implement those, you still have to reference the appropriate Saturday trait with a use keyword somewhere in your module. The reason for this is that you have to tell Rust which method of that particular name to use. There's no reason at all that a given struct or enum cannot have multiple traits defining the same method name on them. Accordingly, Rust needs a way to disambiguate between the options it has available. Requiring the desired trait to be in scope is Rust's normal way of solving this problem. You won't, most of the time, import multiple traits that have the same method on them. So for example, quite a few different traits out there in the world will define a from stir method, and you might want implementations of more than one of them for any given type. You can imagine that a printable trait, something kind of like the real display trait in the standard library, and a convertible trait that takes strings and turns them into an appropriate type, kind of like a deserialization library, both might define a from stir definition as appropriate to what they do. And if you had a struct my thing that had implementations of both and both traits were in scope, Rust couldn't resolve it. So we can disambiguate. Perhaps in some function, you need to use both. Gladly, we have a couple options for disambiguating that. First, remember that a method is just syntactical sugar for calling the function with its first argument explicitly. That's what and self or self or mute self or and mute self means. And this is true for all methods, not just trait methods. In this case, we would call the trait method we want to use directly. Convertible colon colon from string and then some string literal. There's an example in the show notes showing how this would play out with our eatable trait and an even sillier trait called nomable, as in nom 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 on some food. The other option you have for disambiguation is to change the scope at which you use a given trait. Any block, it turns out, is a possible location for a use statement. So you can import the traits you need to use, which happen to have the same method name, in different block scopes, whether that's different function bodies, a standalone block declared within a function body, you name it, anywhere except the top level of the module like you normally would, and that will sufficiently disambiguate for you. And with that last little detail, we're done on the first half of our deep dive on traits. In the next episode, we will dig deeper, looking at trait objects, including object safety, and the impultrate and din trait features, which are about to land on stable rust. Thanks, as always, to all of the sponsors this month. The $10 or more sponsors category included Aaron Turan, Alexander Payne, Anthony Deschamps, Chris Palmer, Benam Esfabod, Dan Abrams, Daniel Collin, David W. Allen, Derek Buckley, Hans Fjallemark, John Rudnick, Matt Rudder, Nathan Scully, Nick Stevens, Peter Tillemans, Paul Naranja, Olaf Leidinger, Olushe Shonaya, Ramon Buckland, Rafe Levine, Vesa Kalavirta, and Zachary Snyder. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up ongoing support at patreon.com slash newruststation, or you can send a one-off my way at any of a number of other services, which are listed at newruststation.com. There, you will also find scripts, code samples for most of the teaching episodes, transcripts for many of the interviews, and full show notes for every episode. Show notes for this episode are at newruststation.com slash show underscore notes slash E023 for episode 23. If you're enjoying the show, I do appreciate it when you help other people find it. You can tell them about it in person. That's my favorite. It's right up there with sending me an email at hello at neurostation.com. 
You can also, of course, share it on social media, rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory, or come up with some other creative way to tell people about it. The show's on Twitter, at New Rust Station, and I'm there, at Chris Kreitcho. I do love getting tweets with news and topic ideas and etc., even if I do sometimes forget them to put them in the news episode, I promise to put them in. They'll get in the next one if that happens, I promise. You can also respond in the threads on the Rust user forums, Reddit, or Hacker News. Until next time, happy coding. A standalone block...